Well, here we are in late October and hurricane season is wrapping up for those of us along the Western Gulf Coast. In the Eastern Gulf and Southeastern US, especially in the state of Florida, the risk remains a bit higher through at least late October or early November. As we look back on lessons learned this hurricane season, I invited my friends with the National Tropical Weather Conference to come visit me in Galveston to record a live session at the historic Tremont House Hotel in downtown Galveston. The theme of our session was preparedness, but we took the opportunity to also look at a hot topic in tropical weather right now, hurricane risk communication. I brought my audio recorder with me. I've been doing that a lot, maybe annoying people. It seems like everywhere I go, people have really interesting insights and I'm often like, why did I not record that? So I could remember it and also to share with our listeners. And so I did that. I brought my audio recorder to the conference. I recorded a few conversations kind of offline. Our guest for this podcast episode, these conversations that I recorded here in Galveston at the conference, our guests include Bill Reed, former director of the National Hurricane Center, Jonathan Brazell, National Weather Service meteorologist and hydrologist, and Brian Flanagan, a weather enthusiast who works in the energy industry. Before we get into these conversations, a bit about the GeoTrek podcast. GeoTrek investigates the impact of extreme weather and natural disasters on individuals and communities. Our goal is to help you improve your decision-making, risk assessment, and communication related to extreme events so you can take action to make yourself, your family, and your community more resilient. Hey, before we get into this episode, we have a favor to ask of you. We'd really appreciate if you'd take a moment to subscribe to this podcast on your favorite podcast platform. Your subscription helps us mark progress, which enables us to make more professional partnerships moving forward and ensures many more episodes of the GeoTrek podcast in the future. Okay, well, let's jump into a beautiful October weekend in Galveston where we're recording these conversations. We'll try to cover the content as efficiently as possible because after these conversations, we're all going over to Galveston Oktoberfest to enjoy bratwurst, sauerkraut, drinks, and live polka music. Our first guest on this episode is Bill Reed, a meteorologist and former staff with the National Weather Service. Bill is also former director of the National Hurricane Center. He lives in League City, Texas, just north of me. We both reside in Galveston County, Texas. Bill, really appreciate you taking time to come on the GeoTrek podcast today. Oh, my pleasure. Anything I can do in the comfort of the of the home, unshaven in a t-shirt, is fine with me. <laughs> Bill, this has been fun. This year, you and I have been on the National Tropical Weather Conference, interviewing a lot of people, having a lot of interesting interactions. It's it's been great getting to know you better, and uh, we've all been learning through the process. Yes, it has. I've been, we're, we're meeting a lot of people. Uh, each one of us can bring someone to the table that the others don't know. So it's been quite quite uh, productive, I think, for what the purpose of, which is giving training to people in the industry. Oh, for sure. Especially in our region, you get into Texas, Louisiana, really the whole Gulf Coast. Hurricanes affect everyone in some way. Bill, this hurricane season seems really distinctive. It was actually quite quiet for much of the season. Even getting into July and August, there was very little activity. Then all of a sudden, in late September, there's a, a major hurricane strike in southwest Florida with, unfortunately, catastrophic impacts, a lot of loss of life and property. When you look back, I mean, you have many decades experience working with hurricanes. Does this season relate to any other seasons that you can remember? It's, actually, this one was closer to the typical season when I was the uh, early years of my career where there would be a uh, maybe a little uh, 
minor activity at the beginning of the season, then a, a quiet period uh, through July and much of August, and then a flurry of activity in September, and then a quick drop-off. So it, it, the particulars are exciting, but the, the, the trend is actually not that far off of what you see uh, historically. You know, it was funny getting into July and August, people said, oh, this, this season so it's dead. But some people started saying, actually, there was a period there where climatologically we were right about where we should be. I think we've just been so influenced by these hyperactive years like 2020 and 2021. You know, we got used to getting into like, the, you know, the K-storm in, in, uh, in July and August kind of thing. Uh, this year it was maybe a little closer to normal. Yeah, the those the really the better part of the last decade or so there's been a inordinate amount of storms that form even before the June 1st nominal kickoff day of the hurricane season and people get used to that sort of thing pretty quickly and when you have a season that doesn't do that it's, it's people start thinking it's a weak season but it's just it's just the wrong way to think about it uh, 1900 the first storm of the season uh, didn't farm till the 31st of August, and it's the one that made landfall in Galveston in September. Right. So it was, I guess, getting in towards the, the heart of the season there. But you're saying that year did not have a lot of activity, say, in July and August. And then all of a sudden, getting into like the last day of August and September, all of a sudden we have one hurricane and it's a very deadly one. Yeah, it was a, it was an otherwise nondescript season, though. It's somewhat of an asterisk because you really don't know what you may have missed over the ocean. But more recent year was... Uh, 1992, uh, Hurricane Andrew, the A-storm, didn't form until the uh, middle of August, nothing before. And I'm sure everybody was thinking the season's going to be a dud. And other than the landfall of a Category 5 in Florida, it probably was a dud. Uh, in 1983, uh, here in the Houston-Galveston area, there was a 1983 season had four storms. And uh, the one landfall in the U.S., it happened to be a Category 3, and it happened to be here in Galveston. Wow. So, you know, we often hear this saying it only takes one. And some of these seasons, it's like that, right, where you have one big storm that stands out. But if it hits a populated area, it can do a lot of impact. Yeah, and I think for the most part, I've, I never I found that the fact that we have we had had two of those examples in our area here where I do public preparedness and outreach kind of stuff on hurricanes, it's pretty easy sell to convince people that it only takes one and you really can't pay much attention to the, whether it's a real busy or a very light numbers wise active season. That's true. And it's all about the impacts, right? It, at the loss of life, loss of property, things like that. If we have a, a really busy season where they're all fish storms out there east of Bermuda, it doesn't really have a direct impact as much to people. Yeah. 2010 was, uh, uh, by many measures, the most active season of, the, of my tenure at the Hurricane Center, and we had nothing of consequence in the U.S. Right, just a lot of activity out over the open water, right? Or in the, in the, in the uh, Caribbean. Caribbean. In the Caribbean, yeah. Yeah. Bill, there's been a lot of talk about communicating risk, especially after Hurricane Ian. Some people are saying, you know, people on the ground in, in Western Florida were confused. There's been even people questioning if the cone of uncertainty and some of these other risk mapping products are causing a lot of confusion. What, what's your take on that? What insights do you have when, uh, when we look at how we predict and, and map out risk and how people may perceive that? Yeah, I, uh, uh, I, I think about that a lot, even back 10 years ago when I was still working the business. And uh, when you really talk to people, I think it, it goes back to the, 
the statement Max Mayfield liked to make. They get fixated on the skinny black line. Uh, while it, while it, it, the, lately it translates into criticism of the, of the limitations of the cone forecast. It's not so much the cone that's causing the problem. It's fixating on the skinny black line that if you don't draw it, they can very quickly visualize the center line of the cone. And uh, in, in particular with Ian, uh, at least on all the national news feeds, including uh, the stations that are exclusively weather, uh, right up until the Tuesday, I'm sure they were mostly saying that, uh, talking about how long it had been since Tampa had been hit. So they were actually also focused, even if they weren't uh, excluding other areas, they were really focused on what the impact would be in Tampa. The thing we need to learn from that is that, uh, that, that the uncertainty exists. <laughs> it gets less as you get closer, but in the time frame that people have to do something, the uncertainty can be pretty large. Bill, hurricanes inflict, you know, multiple hazards. There's the wind field, there's a heavy rain, the storm surge, possible tornadoes. These spread out over sometimes a fairly large geographic area. When you're talking about this focus on the line, do you think people sometimes think of hurricanes more almost like a point or just a very small area that's really smaller than the actual impact? Absolutely. Uh, especially when it comes to the uh, the storm surge uh, problems on many of our uh, coastlines here along the Gulf, where uh, uh, certainly any st any big storm like Rita or Ike that's making landfall, say in southeast Texas or extreme southwest Louisiana, the storm surge threat goes all the way over, to sometimes as far as the Florida Panhandle, as you well know, and the same problem exists in South Florida uh, along the west coast. Not so much on the east coast because of the the bathymetry along the coastline there. So it's this concept that people maybe look at where the eye is forecast to go or where the eye may go, and they're not realizing to the right of that, you can get some really extensive hazards along the coastline. Yeah, uh, I think the Rita flooding, uh, uh, of course, the damaged uh, levee system contributed partly, but Rita flooded, reflooded some areas, even in southeast uh, Louisiana, where they didn't have winds above maybe 30 knots through the whole storm. Yeah, and that's interesting. And, you know, we talk about the cone. If a storm actually tracks on the right side of the cone and then the impacts are the worst near and to the right of the eye, you could get a lot of really catastrophic impacts outside of where the cone was. And I've been hearing people say some people may even interpret the cone, misinterpret the cone and think it means this is where the extent of possible impacts can be. Right. And obviously we know there can be really deadly impacts outside of that cone. Yeah, it's, it's it's fairly disappointing. The cone's been around for uh, almost 20 years now, and uh, it's got big, big explanation that this is not the impacts. It's strictly a, a, a way to visualize what the highest probability of where the center will be. And for a lot of storms, that's the is the important factor, and it works just fine. But you get one running at a very oblique angle, like a lot of storms that recurve coming towards Florida, then very small changes in the track of the storm can make large changes in where the landfall occurs. And I think that creates some of the problem too. I see what you're saying. So if you shift that track 30, 40 miles, you might shift your landfall more than 100 miles, for example. Yeah, yeah, it's more the angle that you're concerned with there, whereas when it's perpendicular to the coast like Alara, Delta, or Ida, uh, the affected Louisiana, those kind of deviations while the impacts were large, the visualization didn't change the area that much that was going to be 
impacted. And uh, as we were talking about yesterday, a, a simple 20 mile further west uh, track of uh, Laura would have uh, uh, been catastrophic storm surge uh, in the Lake Charles, bad enough as the storm was there. Bill, what do you tell people when you feel like they're just fixated on the point of landfall on where the eye is going or, you know, the center line of the cone? How, how do you redirect them? Okay, I, I'll give you a real life example. The, uh, in Hurricane Ike, uh, uh, when uh, the first hurricane watches went up, the, the forecast was uh, somewhere between Matagorda Bay and Corpus Christi for the skinny black line. And the next couple of model runs drifted a little farther south and people started to think we were heading towards Brownsville on that. But we were still 60, you know, 60 to 72 hours out from landfall. The state of Texas emergency management decided they needed to uh, start rushing uh, uh, assets to get people out of the lower Rio Grande Valley. And if they had done that, they would not have had assets to get people out of the southeast Texas where the eventual landfall was. Uh, and it basically boiled down to a calm discussion with the, the leadership team there that uh, that there's uncertainty. Uh, uh, there's still a chance. There's some models that are indicating it would come as far east as, as the Galveston area, and, and we're not committed yet to a, this is exactly where it's going to go. We almost never are. And as it got closer and they started working its way, the track forecast and the model started Coming in further up the coast, uh, I noticed uh, from uh, from calls I was getting that uh, evacuations weren't happening in our area up here, and it was the same thing. I had to make a call uh, and talk with some of the decision makers and explain uh, uh, that there's as, almost as good a chance that it'll make landfall in Galveston as it would be in Matagorda, and even if it, and that was a case where a big it's a big storm. I said, even if it goes into Matagoria, you're going to flood Galveston Island. Probably would have flooded it worse than what happened. Sure. Uh, that's we, how. Yeah, I think that's the the uh, the key to success on these is having uh, meteorologists that understand the thing uh, embedded, or at least on on as part of the discussion on decision makers meetings. Yeah. Uh, no, that's. Powerful. I've got a lot on their plate. It's not the. the understanding all the nuances of our meteorology is is asking a lot. Bill, during Ian, I've heard this sociological concept of anchoring. So like, you know, the early forecast runs, people see that and they almost get fixated on it. And, and so people got fixated on Tampa that when shifts started happening, I've heard some people have, have an opinion that people were fixated on those early runs and that they, they didn't let their mind change. With, uh, with Ike, you know, it started looking like it's coming to Central Texas and then some of those model runs started trending south. Do you think people just got that in the brain and, and, and were convinced like this is going to be a Corpus Christi or a, a South Padre Island event and, and just were maybe too fixated on that and weren't open to like then the, the track shifting farther north? Because it sounds like there was a change in the track then and you almost had to follow up with them and let them know that this is still quite uncertain. This can move around a lot. Yeah, and it was changing. It wasn't, uh, it was changing almost every forecast. It was a very noisy uh, model guidance. Yeah, that's like, what, 15 years ago almost. So the model improvements are, are phenomenal that we've had since then, and we don't get that much fluctuation. But the, uh, I, I, I like the studies that show that. I, don't, I personally don't, didn't sense that with, when I talk to people. 
Uh, and in fact, the, the different aspect of anchoring that I get the sense is is the uh, risk aversion of people. Uh, if you really don't like risk, and there's a hurricane forecast that shows your area, that that's what you'll anchor on because you don't want to be here for that one. If you're not risk averse, you might start anchoring on it's going to miss a sea, and get anchored on that because you're not you're not in, you're you're not inclined to want to evacuate anyway, and you're. You don't mind the risk, so you, that gives you your out. So in a way, people might be predisposed to, to maybe what they want to hear. Yep, that's what I think. Yeah, that's very interesting. Jonathan Brazell from the National Weather Service in Lake Charles, he always talks about how you'll drive yourself crazy if, if you just um, take to heart every change in every model run, right? It's shifting west, now it's shifting east, now it's back to west. He really encourages people to look probabilistically. So in other words, it, his take on this is with all these shifts, sometimes your, your probability of exceeding a wind threshold or a flood threshold at a given location really is not changing as much as you might think from all these little track shifts. And I wanted to um, kind of pivot our conversation to talking about when things, when we talk about probabilistic forecast, I remember you said at one point, every forecast by nature is probabilistic. What did you mean by that? And, and could you explain that to our audience a little bit? Sure. Uh, uh, you know, you, you have, you can go find your sunrise and sunset and uh, and uh, tide things. And they call them forecasts because it's in the future. But actually, it, they've got all the data they need to come up with exactly the timing of those events. Uh, almost everything else in nature doesn't fit that mold. We don't have all the information. We're starting off right at the get-go when we make a forecast in the weather, weather end of it. We have an incomplete picture of all the aspects of the atmosphere that are going to cause things to change over the next uh, hour, half a day, uh, two or three days. And then when you get out to the three to five day part of the forecast, it can be pretty monumental, the amount of things that are missing to produce the forecast. So the, the stuff that the Hurricane Center uses to make these forecasts, a lot of it required, does a lot of uh, simulation type runs to, to get you what the, the probability might be of any different aspect of that. And that's what I meant by that. It's not, it's never, you're never going to catch somebody that knows what they're doing in this saying there's a hundred percent chance that, that this hurricane is going to make landfall in Tampa three days from now. So there, there's just too much uncertainty in the future to be able to pinpoint like that. Yeah. It, it, when it gets on the impacts, it gets even more complicated because the, the, uh, like, as you know, with the storm surge, the, the shape of the coastline, the angle of approach, the shape of the wind field, there's all these factors that you really don't measure <laughs> that you're trying to estimate that play into that. So you, you have to give it a kind of a broad brush. What are the probabilities of exceeding these values in order to give people some kind of guideline to make their decision? You know, you're right. Weather forecasting by nature, there's uncertainty, really forecasting most things, economics, whatever it is, there's usually a lot of uncertainty the farther you get into the future. But it seems like humans by nature, they don't like uncertainty, right? They want to know for my golf tee time Saturday at 9 a.m., will it be raining or not, right? They, they want yes or no, but the answer really is some probability. Yeah, maybe. Maybe is the right answer. <laughs> but uh, yeah, uh, uh I mean, we kind of cave into that, too. You notice we forecast rainfall amounts. We'll give a range, which in some respect is acknowledging the probabilistic. But, boy, we're, we're giving a precision factor that suggests a lot more 
accuracy that's really there. Precision versus accuracy are two different things. You mean when we're saying a half inch of rain, it almost sounds like we, we have this really under wraps. We know what's going to happen, but there might be a lot more uncertainty than that. Oh, yeah. Well, I'm thinking more in line of the grass. You say like a, somewhere in the area will have a half inch. That's actually not too bad. But when we come up with our graphic, it has nice finely drawn lines and stuff where the different amounts of rain will be uh, several days out. Who are, we're, uh, if, if we believe that, we're kidding ourselves. But I think we're I think we're somewhat misleading the people on the other end because it looks real. I mean, it looks very precise and it must be accurate, but it's not. There is something about a weather map. I mean, we talk about this. There are hurricanes, and then I've heard you use the term model cane, right? When when something's projected, say, eight days out in the future or 10 days out in the future, it, it, it somehow it looks authoritative when it's circling the Internet because all the isobar lines are drawn. I mean, it looks like someone knew what they're talking about. But those of us that work in the biz, we're like, okay, especially if you get on out beyond, say, five to seven days, there's a ton of uncertainty with that. But it may look certain because you have this map that's depicting all these exact precise features. That's right. And uh, the, the, the people that understand that, all, you know, all they interpret that to mean is that the, the, the basic environment that, that we think is required to gain to develop a tropical cyclone is forecast by the models to exist then. But it's highly unlikely that... that making something from nothing is, is accurate yet. I, I, that, that's proven out by the fact we haven't been able to push our tropical weather outlook for development out farther than the, the five days that we started with back in 2008 because the skill just isn't there. So with these longer term model runs, you're saying the proper way to look at that is saying, OK, in general, the models are say, saying the environmental conditions could support a tropical cyclone in the Gulf next week. But, you know, will it will it actually look the way this map says? Probably not if it's out beyond five to seven days. Yeah. I, one, if I got really bored and had nothing better to do, I would spend the whole season uh, documenting the model canes and, and see what percentage of them actually turned out being a system uh, beyond beyond a week. I would when you get within a week, there's probably something to be said for paying attention to it. But yeah, and for our listeners that are tropical weather enthusiasts, well, on these model runs, if you go to say tropical tidbits, you can see how many hours in the future this is, and sometimes we'll see these these snapshots circulating around that get out, out beyond well beyond a week and and you know some of these model runs go out beyond even two weeks it's just incredibly unlikely that it's going to actually look like that so uh, it's always good to just take a deep breath don't freak out and uh, like bill like you're saying just to realize that there's a general idea there that the environment could support this type of a storm. But as we know as time goes on a lot of times that storm may not even form and if it does it may shift quite a bit Yep. Bill, thank you so much for taking time to come on the GeoCheck pod, uh, podcast. Really appreciate it. It's been great to work with you with the National Tropical Weather Conference this year. And hopefully the season's done, at least here in the Gulf. And uh, we'll have to see, you know, as we get into talking about eventually next season and, uh, and beyond. Yeah, it looks like for certainly for us in the West Gulf that we're at a westerly's dominant pattern as we should be by late October. And I didn't see anything that's going to change that in the near future. So. Uh, other than remnants of things like Roslyn that's uh, coming across Mexico, the, the tropics are going to be someone else's game the rest of the year. I always like to think once we hit Galveston Oktoberfest, we're home free. I, I'm hoping the streak continues. So <laughs> it seems like there's climatological support for that. Um, so hopefully we're home free for the season. 
Yeah, until we get that outlier, right? <laughs> Bill, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Appreciate it. You, you bet. Enjoy the rest of your day, Hal. Okay, Our next guest is Jonathan Brazell, meteorologist and hydrologist with the National Weather Service. Jonathan works out of the National Weather Service office in Lake Charles, Louisiana, in the southwestern part of the state. Jonathan was one of the guests on stage at this live session of the National Tropical Weather Conference, whom Bill Reed and I interviewed just minutes after this audio segment was recorded. I'm with Jonathan Brazell, a hydrologist and meteorologist with the National Weather Service in Lake Charles. Jonathan, thank you so much for taking time to come on the GeoTrek podcast. You're welcome. Jonathan, you've been through a ton of hurricanes in South Louisiana over the past decade. And I, I have to think that that's led to a lot of lessons learned and improved preparedness. What are some of the things you've learned through a lot of these hurricane strikes you've had over the past eight to 10 years? Well, even before I got to Southwest Louisiana, I, I'd been watching the, the hurricane history because I, I grew up in Louisiana already. So I, I had already been, when, when I found out I was gonna move to Southwest Louisiana, I had already been thinking in my head, what am I gonna look for to reduce my own personal risk. Uh, so there, there's multiple things you have to do to uh, make yourself less vulnerable to, to a storm event. I like that you started off there with your personal risk. A lot of times people want to go from the top down. You almost were thinking from the bottom up. Bottom How up. can you start with yourself? You are your, fir- you are your own first responder in, in a big situation. So you got to think about you, your family, your friends, your neighbors, you're there first on the scene. So, so what I did was every time I'd go to the grocery store, I'd buy non-perishables. Um, and you know, by the time we actually needed it, I had a lot stacked up ready to go. Uh, and then, uh, so. So like canned food, dry food, nuts, yes. beef jerky, all that kind yes. of stuff that's not gonna spoil. Right. And so we were, we were also looking around, going back a little bit, when we were looking for a home, uh, I, I was looking for an area that wasn't going to flood. Uh, that's either from the rainfall or the storm surge. Um, the house I wanted, big nice house, was was in a flood area. So we ditched that idea, and uh, it was hard to do. But you go for the areas that are less risky. I really like what you're saying there. So there was a house that you really wanted. It was a good deal. It seemed to be what you were looking for, but you were considering the flood risk, and that yes. actually led to you not purchasing not, not that house. purchasing that home. But we ended up where we are now, and it's kind of elevated off the, the main road some. So uh, it's, in, it's in a less risky area as far as the rainfall. Now, could surge get it, but it's going to have to be a big storm surge event. And you're in Sulphur, so you're on the I-10 corridor. Your place is actually just north of I-10, right? So a surge would actually have to get all the way to I-10 and a little bit farther. And in Hurricane Ike, uh, it it got pretty close. I remember driving along the I-10 corridor the day of Ike, and I couldn't believe seeing storm surge. I mean, that's what, 25 miles inland. I mean, it was incredible. But it's just due to our flat coastline down there. Yeah, so Ike and then, well, even before Ike, there was Rita. And then after those storms, we have Laura and all these other storms. I mean, what's a storm that stands out to you that maybe did something that was just shocking, like, you know, like hard to believe that it did it? Or were you kind of prepared for all the things that you've seen with hurricanes in that area? Well, as far as the storm surge, um, Hurricane Ike stands out by far. 
other than Laura, but Laura was such a smaller storm surge event in, in the amount of area. Even though it was higher, it was a very small area that was impacted. Ike was amazing. I mean, we're recording this here in Galveston, Texas. Ike made landfall. The eye came right across the island here in Galveston, but a ton of flooding, not only on the upper Texas coast, but also, also in southwest Louisiana. Do you think a lot of people were expecting that amount of storm surge that far from the eye? No. Uh, I remember talking to an emergency manager that was in, uh, I'm sorry, the mayor of Delcom, and we were telling him it's going to flood. And he's like, you mean to tell me a Category 2 going in south of Galveston is going to flood our city? Uh, I said yes. And they did, right? They did, yes. Yeah, they're very vulnerable. Delcom is right off of Vermilion Bay there. That's right. Very low line. But again, I guess it's, it's the fact people focus sometimes on the category, right? So Category, tracks. Uh, Watching the track shift back and forth will drive you insane, man. Let's uh, talk a little bit about that because people want to really look at the latest model run and the shift to the west, shift to the east, back to the west. You talk often about probabilistic and, and looking at, instead of looking at the best track forecast, looking at a probabilistic forecast. Could you explain what that means? Yeah, you got you to start thinking probabilistic because um, it, it uses ensemble data where it spreads out the, the forecast a little more. Uh, to give you a probability of seeing the chance of that event occurring. Uh, I know a lot of people have issues with probability, but we, we, during a hurricane event, the National Weather Service will make that easier on you by uh, producing what we call HTI graphics, which stands for hurricane threat and, and uh, impacts. So those graphics based on what we see in the probability data, we'll tell you what you need to do to prepare for that event. So that's broken down, as far as I understand, the HTI maps are broken down by impact, and that's they right. also tie action to that, where that's maybe right. people need to evacuate and that kind of thing. That's right. So it, 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 it does a hurricane winds threat, you got the storm surge threat, the rainfall threat, and then the tornado threat. Jonathan, I just got back from Florida where Hurricane Ian unfortunately killed over 100 people. A lot of people were flat-footed and people seem to be confused with, you know, for example, we talk about the cone of uncertainty and there were people outside the cone that said we had no concept that buildings would be washed away and this kind of thing. How can focused on, say, impact mapping or probabilistic uh, flooding data maybe maybe help people as opposed to just looking for looking at the cone and where the eye may track? Yeah, so as you and I have spoke about before, uh, when the hurricane, when Hurricane Eden was south of Cuba, uh, the probabilistic data for the storm surge guidance was already through the roof in Fort Myers area. Yes, it was spread out all the way up to north of Tampa, but as, with each advisory cycle, it stayed very steady in Fort Myers area, which tells me that that area is under a high, it, it has a high risk already. And so the probabilities weren't waffling that much. And then, you know, a day or two before landfall, the probabilities went, went through the roof that uh, something bad was going to happen. So sometimes people are focusing on the quote unquote best track or on That's the cone right. of where the eye may go. And so they're, they're thinking, oh, the risk is lower. Now the risk is higher. You're saying if you just stick with probabilistic, it's shifting around a lot less. That's right. And you have a better idea of it's really what's your probability of getting flooded over a certain level, right? Absolutely. And so what we'll do is, We'll uh, do the path of least regret. So if you take the actions that we, 
we, we provide guidance for in those impact graphics, you will, you'll be okay. Uh, your home may not, but, but you and your family will. Right, you're doing your best to help people understand what their risk is and how they need to get out of harm's Absolutely. way and that kind of thing. Um, how do you think that people can better prepare moving forward? I mean, when you talk to people, I know you do a lot of engagement and outreach. How can people take actions to help themselves not be blindsided from flooding, wind damage, these different things, especially with hurricanes? All right, like we start out with know your personal risk. Um, so for, for rainfall flooding, you know, there's a lot of information out there. Uh, with, they got the FEMA flood insurance rate maps. You know, some of them are kind of outdated, uh, but FEMA Region 6 is actually making newer, better maps, and it covers the entire area. So if you live in, in the FEMA Region 6 area, you got really good data that you can make an assessment of what is your risk from 100-year, uh, 500-year rainfall. And, and Those are detailed maps, right? So you can look in and see your area. Very detailed, uh, so it's on the INFORM site, I-F-R-M, and so uh, that's a good place to start for looking at your rainfall flood risk. Jonathan, where does FEMA Region 6 cover geographically? It covers Mississippi, uh, I'm sorry, Texas and Louisiana, uh, Arkansas, Oklahoma, and New Mexico. I got you. So a lot of the Western Gulf right there, you could get a detailed map of your flood risk. That's right, uh, for, for uh, rainfall flooding. Now for storm surge flooding, uh, the National Hurricane Center has done pre-mapping, uh, pre uh, but again, it's based on category and it's, uh, but it gives you an idea of what could happen uh, to your area. Uh, so that's another good place to go look for uh, flooding uh, information. So is that with like the slosh mapping? Uh, mapping? Yes. And this gets into like the moms and meows and the, the maximum envelope of water kind of thing, right? Yes, but uh, the National Hurricane Center's website has just the, the moms attached together, which is the maximum of the maximums attached together uh, all along the Atlantic and Gulf Coast. Yeah, that's a really good suggestion that people can start look at their neighborhood. I love the fact that you were saying, you know, this for you even was personal to the level of informing your real estate choices. That's right. And I think that, you know, when I moved to Galveston, I showed up in February. It was 71 degrees, beautiful day. I was thinking, I do not want to live on low ground and be flood prone. And I think that, especially Gulf Coast, we get so much beautiful weather, you can let your guard down and say, oh, there won't be a hurricane in my neighborhood, there right. won't be a flood in my neighborhood. But I think if we use those, if we think about our personal choices and say, how can I be less risky? How can I live in higher elevation or elevated house? I think that could really probably help people. Yeah, and then, and then the last thing is uh, for wind risk, uh, Know, know your construction type of your house. Is it, you know, what do you live in? Uh, you know, there are uh, structures that are more risky than others. Uh, say for instance, mobile homes. Uh, those are the first things to go. Uh, how, you know, how many trees are around your house? That's another one. Um, and also garages, depending on which way the wind blows in a hurricane, garages can become an opening for the hurricane that allows it to get in and lift your roof off, so. Right, so kind of understanding your construction, understanding your house, what it's made of, 
the orientation of it, where the that, winds are that, coming. That's right. How do you see people getting blindsided sometimes where they're, they're flat-footed, they're not prepared, they're, they're caught off guard? What leads to that? Uh, again, it's probably looking at the forecast track without looking at the overall impacts of each individual impact. So. Well, let's talk about that because I've noticed that a lot of people think if the eye goes over your location, you've taken a direct hit. If the eye does not go over your location, people think that it missed, right? In reality, when we actually get on the ground, how is it different than that perception? Uh, so I, actually, everything east of the eye for, for miles is going to be heavily impacted, especially for a Cat 3 or higher. Uh, so. I mean, for over 100 miles in some cases, especially storm surge flooding. Uh, that extends well away from the, the center of the storm. So I hear you saying these impacts extend over a huge area. They're not, uh, sometimes people think they're, of hurricanes they're not as a, a point. Single, yeah, not yeah. a single point. Uh, so uh, that same goes for the wind too. The wind field, you know, it can be a very small wind field, but it also can extend outward hundreds of miles. Have you seen in the past where people think, okay, a storm is going into the upper Texas coast, so Louisiana is going to be fine? Do, do people sometimes, or, or have they had enough experience? Because like with Ike, a Texas storm could do a lot of damage in Louisiana. That's right. Uh, so, uh, yeah, it just depends uh, on who, who, who you're talking to. A lot of people now take it very seriously because we've been ever since uh, 2008, well, yeah, ever since uh, Rita, and then Ike and all those hit. Everybody's taking them serious. And, and after Laura, it's gonna be like, you say go, they go. I also recorded an interview with Brian and Lisa Flanagan. Brian is a weather enthusiast who has been passionate about the science of meteorology since he was a kid. He has an interesting perspective because he works in the ener energy industry. I'm grateful to have someone with his knowledge of weather and climate working in that industry here in Southeast Texas. He's been participating in the National Tropical Weather Conference for around six or seven years now. His wife, Lisa, joined us in the podcast conversation. Her perspective was really interesting as well because she's a quote unquote normal person who's not a weather or climate enthusiast. Interacting with such people certainly helps us improve our communication weather risk to everybody. We're here at the National Tropical Weather Conference in Galveston, Texas. I'm with Brian and Lisa. Brian, you're a weather fanatic. Lisa, you're kind of along for the ride. We're talking a lot about <laughs> hurricane preparedness and the challenges in communicating hurricane risk, whether it's wind, rainfall flooding, or storm surge flooding. What are some things you got from our session today, and what are some thoughts that you have about the challenges of communicating hurricane risk? Well, being married to him for 25 years, I hear about the weather all the time, but I don't really look at the weather, and I hear you guys talking about the, the uh, I can't think of the word, the challenges of reaching people like me who, I don't watch the news, I don't, I mean, there's got to be a better way to, like, get people going, I'm at risk. So, Lisa, if you were at risk, you're, you're probably deferring to Brian, right? Who Absolutely. Who loves extreme Absolutely. weather and, and meteorology. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. But not everybody has a Brian. Right. So That's what true. would you do if you didn't have a Brian? Where would you get your information I'd from? I'd be screwed. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, literally, because I don't, I, I'm not from this area. I don't. Like, you're from Wyoming originally, I, right? Right. And so. I, and I think I, it's been a while since a hurricane hit Wyoming, isn't it? <laughs> Absolutely. It's been a while. It's been a bit. Just a hair. <laughs> Um, but yeah, it's, I, I mean, I, I listen to him, but 
for 25 years after some point you just start it's just noise and so I don't really and it's it's a very I, I, I was I was very interested today in listening to y'all I, I came down here for him but I was like wow this is kind of cool but it's it's very I, I don't know what I would do honestly Wait, be, before we go over to Brian a quick question another question for you so how long have you both lived here in the in the southeast Texas he was born and raised here. You were born and raised here. What about you, Lisa? I've been here since 91. So you've seen a lot of hurricanes and a lot of impacts. You mentioned sometimes it can just be noise. Did it change after a storm like Harvey or other ones where you're seeing like big flooding? Did it go to be like, okay, wait, this really is uh, applied information that's important? Or was it, again, just I know everyone has a busy life. So sometimes it's like we're, some people aren't really thinking about the weather on a daily basis. I, I think because every storm that we've had be it Rita, Harvey, Ike, really, we weren't personally impacted. We had, I mean, we live in an area where for whatever reason keeps getting kind of bypassed. And I so see. you become very complacent in it. I see. And I mean, you know, like we have all the panels to put up on our house, which are an absolute pain in the butt to put up, right. you know, and we're not young people anymore. So it's like, yeah, it, it, it's, it's an interesting thing because it hasn't personally impacted us. We've never been flooded. We've never lost even probably a shingle. You You're know? saying it can be easier to be more complacent Absol- if it hasn't absolutely. affected Absolutely. And, and so I think the more people that are unaffected, the more complacency you get. Yeah. You know? And so... For sure. Brian, I think that's an Brian, issue. you're a major weather enthusiast. You've been part of the National Tropical Weather Conference for a long time. I mean, yes. what are some of the lessons you've learned over the years on just being better prepared and understanding your, your hurricane and extreme weather risks? I think just you, you really need to listen to what's being said out there. From the National Weather Service, you need to listen to a valid source. And you have to focus on yourself and your family to be prepared for the worst and in case that occurs. But again, a lot of people get complacent if they're not directly affected. You know, one thing that was talked about today that I think is a huge plus that people are seeing now are the cameras that are out there that show the true surge. And people now are getting a chance to see how bad is bad. And that's what they need to see and need to take that and say, what can I do to prepare my family and my house everything for neighbors and help warn other people and and get the word out there and spread it you know from the national weather service to your friends and family it was amazing seeing these live cameras from hurricane ian and it almost looked like the ocean had moved into parts of fort myers beach i mean this wasn't just still water this had massive waves and it was washing away buildings maybe people seeing that it could be like okay this really could be catastrophic exactly and even myself watching that and seeing that it just made me think even more, you know, even me, sometimes I get complacent and seeing stuff like that helps, you know, bring it back because I've always lived inland and not been affected by any surge. That's not been a concern growing up in Pearland, Texas, which is far inland. But even I need to see that from time to time so I can pass that information along and don't become complacent from surge, which again, has never affected me personally. Brian, you mentioned getting weather information from a credible source. Right. Back in the day, there used to be maybe like three sources, right? You had right. maybe your, your, a couple news channels on, on the evening news. Now with social media, exactly. there's source, there's weather information coming from everywhere, from, from your friend's Facebook page to an app to all right. these different things. How do you really know what a credible source is? And I know, like Lisa mentioned, exactly. she doesn't watch the news. So, I mean, what would you, 
what advice would you give to someone to get a credible source for accurate weather information? Right. When it comes to that, at this point, make sure it's a source as a National Weather Service, National Severe Storm Prediction Center, National Hurricane Center. Make sure it's those sources, not someone that has some group out there that's just posting one model run saying a massive hurricane is going to hit and it's showing 300 hours out. We see all that all the time. And make sure it comes from the National Weather Service, from the National Storm Prediction Center or National Hurricane Center are your local news stations. And yeah, it's got to be teamwork for everyone. I love that advice. And I've noticed even on social media, there are a couple people that often will be showing the graphics from the Hurricane Center, showing the graphics yes. from the Weather Service. But other people are just showing, I don't even know where these graphics came from, or it's not as credible information. Exactly. And there are some credible groups out there that support and show the models and stuff. But people like Lisa, for instance, who's not in tune with the weather like we are, they're not going to know and that's just going to cause panic and false information and that's the biggest challenge i think that we all have to to get that correct information out there to everyone i see both by sharing it and maybe directing people to those sources exactly directing people to those sources do y'all feel a little better after going through the session today uh, these types of uh, information exchanges and oh, discussions yeah. does it definitely kind of help you feel a little better prepared oh yeah definitely it, it helps absolutely and the key is to keep that concern or not concerned but keep that you know in information flowing through the year because you, you know here we are at the end of hurricane season winter comes along you know people get complacent and it comes back around and i think we just need to get keep that same information flowing you know here about april and may june but yeah as long as we, as long as we keep that information valid information flowing to let people know we live in an area where hurricanes are a threat and we must be prepared you know and just because it's winter time doesn't mean you shouldn't in the back of your mind you know have a plan down the road sure it and sounds like getting out ahead of these storms and being prepared instead of waiting until they're on our doorstep exactly absolutely brian and lisa thanks so much for taking time to You're come welcome. on the geotrek podcast we're looking forward to hanging out this evening and uh, in and uh, and beyond this uh, conference uh, oh, yeah. with you guys absolutely thank you. appreciate thanks it so thank much. you so much thank appreciate it while a lot of great insights from our guests in this episode, here are a few of the perspectives that really stood out to me. I love Bill Reed's emphasis that a hurricane does not just strike a point, but inflicts geographically widespread hazards along the coastline and inland. He mentioned about how a large hurricane, like Hurricane Ike from 2008, could make landfall along the upper Texas coast and create a storm surge that floods the coastline all the way to the Florida panhandle, hundreds of miles to the east. So that would include the coastline of not only Texas, but Louisiana, Mississippi, Alabama, all the way to the Florida panhandle. That's hundreds of miles of coastline that's flooded, not just the point near where the eye makes landfall. So people often think of hurricane hazards as points instead of large areas. This may be in part a function of how we create maps to display the risk. Maps like the cone of uncertainty or even the hurricane symbol with a straight line track that is shown on many of the news networks get viewers' attention on where the eye is forecast to go instead of drawing attention to the huge area of coastline vulnerable to flood and wind hazards. Jonathan Brazell had a lot of really profound impacts on this episode as well. What keeps coming back to me, though, is his personal choice that he made to not buy a home that he wanted because he felt that it had too much flood risk. He allowed his knowledge of science to inform a personal decision and then took action to buy a less, less risky home. This level of personal responsibility is very admirable 
And in the end, he can sleep better at night when a big storm threatens because he lives in a less risky area now. What stands out to me from the conversation I had with Brian is the importance of getting your weather information from a credible source, like the National Weather Service, National Hurricane Center, or a credible broadcast meteorologist who aligns their forecasts closely with the official, gov official government forecasts. With the rise of social media, graphics circulate the internet at lightning speed, and we need to make sure the information we're looking at is credible and accurate. A big thank you to our listeners for the great engagement over the past several months as we've really dug in deep to hurricane season, hurricane risks, even traveling over to Hurricane Ian in Florida. We're going to continue next week with an episode that looks back at the 10-year anniversary of Hurricane Sandy, or I should say Superstorm Sandy there in New Jersey, New York, and along the Mid-Atlantic Coast, and share insights from the National Waterways Conference the week after that as we look a little bit more at inland flood risk. Don't worry, for our listeners that are itching to get into the change of season, maybe get away from hurricanes and get away from flooding, we do have some interesting and adventurous episodes planned for really the change of season, getting into fall and winter. Without giving away too much, I'll just say we're planning to record some episodes live in the northeastern states later this autumn. That'll include some seasonally relevant stories from the northeast as we think more about the cooler weather and the approach eventually of winter coming our way. A special thanks, as always, to our GeoCheck production and marketing team, including Seneth Baker, Ashley Anderson, Jeremiah Long, Christopher Cook, and Amy Wilkins. I'm, Do I'm Dr. Howell, and I'll catch you on the next episode of the GeoTrek Podcast.